Great. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you again. Enjoyed our time in chapel earlier today. If you were there, you probably suspect I spent my afternoon at the gym, maybe hitting some threes or whatever. You, I, I didn't. Uh, actually, I, I did make my way down to the Wake Forest Coffee House. I thought that was more of an achievable goal, and uh, so that was good. Um, so I'm glad to be with you. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the institute that I direct at my university. Uh, this, this is just contact information, and if you wanted to keep up with what we do, we do original research on um, the experiences of people who have, are navigating sexual identity questions in light of their faith commitments and gender identity questions in light of their faith commitments. So the different sites here would let you keep up with us. Um, and I hope that you will. Uh, there are some uh, video and some academic papers at the website. The Facebook is a little more like what I'm currently doing, or if there's an article that just came out, we'll often post a link or an abstract to it, things like that. And I usually work with about 14, 16 graduate students who are studying in the field of psychology, self-consciously as Christians, to think through these different issues. and. Um, they do the dissertations and theses, and we work together to to do the projects we're doing. So probably maybe six to eight kind of lines of research going on at any one time. And the way that we frame um, research is that we we would want to help people navigate the difficult terrain of sexual identity development, which we'll learn more about tonight. What does that even mean to have that think about that developmentally? Another way that we talk about this is we want to help uh, shed light rather than apply heat. In fact, um, this was something that someone said about a book I had written, so I thought that that really captures the spirit with which we approach um, the topic, the people represented by the topic. Um, so I just stole that and put it on my PowerPoint slide. <laughs> That's kind of shameless, but, um, but I like the image. So a couple things. I shared in chapel, but if you weren't there, I wanted to say this one thing, that, I, that there is um, someone had shared with me a way of breaking down how people talk about this topic for the church and um, as a representative of the church, that there are those who are instructing on sexual ethics and morality to help the church understand what are, is morally permissible and what's morally impermissible. Secondly, there's those who engage um, in preparing the church to be have a better pastoral response um, in this area. Third, there's those who actually engage pastorally with individuals and families. And fourth, there is the idea of responding to those who want to move the church away from its traditional doctrinal position. Those people may be within the church, they may be outside the church, but uh, that's another way to think about this. There may be other ways to organize that, but it's not unique to me. Someone shared that with me. and I see myself as doing uh, two and three there, so I'm sort of working to help equip people to care better for those people navigating this terrain, and I also engage with the actual people and their families. So if you're here to be equipped, I'm glad you're here. If this is your personal story, or you um, have a loved one that you care about, and this is their story, I'm glad you're here as well. This is, you're in the right place. So I'm going to share different reflections on what I see in terms of ministry 
in a changing culture. Um, one of the things I pointed out in chapel this morning was that when Lewis writes to Sheldon and um, Davy Van Auken, it's the 1940s. Well, now it's 2015. So what does that mean to minister well in a changing culture? So I want to talk a little bit more about alternatives to the causation and change debate. Um, as I have seen from the 1990s up till today, the cultural debates have really been shaped by people feeling like they have to say that orientation is either nature versus nurture. It's one or the other. And I think that has not been helpful for the church. It has taken up a lot of our energy, but it's probably not been helpful. If I had to give you an answer to causation, I tend to organize it into these four areas of potential biological antecedents, childhood experiences, other environmental influences, and then adult decisions. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that an adult decision to experience same-sex attraction, but as an adult, you do make decisions that reinforce ways of thinking and behavior that take you down a path, and you have choices to make. So this was illustrated to me once with an 18-year-old who was about to go to college, and he and his parents came to our institute for a two-day consultation, which is not uncommon. So I was meeting with them, and the first day... I was doing a breakout session where I was just talking with him, and at one point I said, kind of what I said this morning, is that I don't think you chose to experience your same-sex attractions. From everything you've shared with me so far, it sounds like you have been saying you found yourself experiencing these attractions when you went through puberty, and other people around you, your peer group, developed attractions to the opposite sex, but you developed attractions to the same sex. And he said, oh, Dr. Yarhouse, you've got to tell my parents that. They, they think I chose this, these attractions, to make their life unbearable. And I said, look, I'm, yeah, of course, I'm happy to talk with your parents about that. I don't, I don't think you chose to experience your same-sex attraction. However, gently, I do think you have choices to make. I think you have choices to make about your behavior and about identity and about the decisions that will sort of be a part of your trajectory in your life moving forward. Dr. Yarhouse, don't tell my parents that. Okay. (laughs) And so there was this really interesting um, reflection with him that, that everybody had sort of a stake in the question of causation. So for him, at 18, his assumption was, if I didn't choose this, then everything that sort of unfolds from the impulses that I have are a reliable moral guide for how I would live my life. And I'm not obligated in any way to reflect on that or to think about anything outside of myself as a standard by which I would align my life. In other words, the organism, sensate impulses from the organism would be a reliable moral guide for living. And that's not how Christians have historically understood um, morality or ethics, right? I mean... C.S. Lewis in um, The Abolition of Man says that our instincts are like people. People say different things. We have different instincts, and you have to look outside of yourself to determine which instincts to follow. And there's a standard that's outside of yourself, and Christians say that that's God's revealed will in Scripture around this that helps you order your life. 
But you don't certainly look within and say the impulses themselves are a reliable moral guide. And yet, of course, my field, psychology, is replete in that kind of. That's exactly where we often have our point of reference is what is the organism telling you? Um, and that gets complicated in ministry because many times a person will say, if they're a Christian, they'll say, well, why did God give me these feelings if he didn't want me to act on them? And it sort of spins it that way. And I can understand the sort of intuitive appeal to that. But again, Christians have not historically drawn those same conclusions. So again, gently, I would say to the person, you know, as I said this morning, I don't think you chose to experience these attractions. And I don't think that God necessarily, we can conclude that God gave them to you. But that God in his sovereignty is not surprised that you experience them. And I think God is saying, what will you do with what you do experience? And I think that's a different question of maybe, I mentioned this morning vocation, I would say tonight stewardship. How do I become a better steward of my sexuality would be a better reference point than looking at your sexual impulses as a moral guide. So back to causation. Um, I don't know that we're clear on each of these four areas, but if I had to organize clusters of research, I would put them in these four areas, right? So I don't think Christians have anything to fear from research on biological antecedents. I'm not afraid of research. I wouldn't want the church to fear research. The question is, what are the limitations of research? What can we know from empirical study? And is it interpreted accurately? What is the design? And you need good people, thoughtful people, with humility, doing that work and interpreting those findings with equal humility. Here's what we know and don't know. And I don't... I think many of the studies that have been done on regions of the X chromosome, on prenatal hormonal hypothesis, animal, animal models, um, structural models of the brain, morphology, I don't, I mean, they're interesting. Many have not been replicated. Some have. Um, many are sort of overly simplistic, I think, in their conceptualization of etiology. I guess what I would say is um, I think more would have to be done to convince me that it's just that. But I think the way you think that the way you think about biology is more like um, if it were making a contribution, it probably provides a push in this direction for some people. But when people think biology, they think like eye color or hair color, so that if biology is involved, it makes you gay. And I think that is oversimplifying the complexities of sexuality. So when you think of moving from like genotype to phenotype, it's not like eye color or hair color, but think of it more like Everyone in this room has different propensities towards depression. And, other, and we all have a different propensity towards anxiety. And so at a lower threshold, some of us will feel more anxious. A lower threshold, some of us more depressed. And that comes from biology. We have a push in that direction. Um, or if you want a positive example, outgoingness. right? If you don't want to have a negative example, positive, outgoingness is related to biological antecedents. So... Okay, it's probably more like that, maybe in temperamental differences, personality differences. But then other things would have to be in play. And what would those other things be? Well, we're not really sure what those other things would be. And it's very hard to get funding to do research on what those other things would be because all the funding is going towards the biological hypothesis. So I think there could be childhood experiences. I mean, people will talk about things like that. Evangelicals are drawn, honestly, to two theories, just to be completely forthright with you. And the two theories evangelicals love are faulty parent-child relationships and childhood sexual abuse. And I would say that if I'm tough on the research on biology, I have to be equally tough on the research in these other two areas or I just wouldn't be a good 
scientist in, in this area. Um, and I think there's a lot of, um, there's not good quality research on the parent-child relationship piece. Now, clinically, I've met many people who would say that they've not had good relationships with their same-sex parent in particular, but that doesn't, that's not a research. That, that's, that's me meeting with people saying there's common themes here, but that's not where you draw conclusions for everybody, right? And there's also, there is a higher rate of childhood sexual abuse among gay and lesbian adults. If you were to interview them or survey them, as people have, they'd be more likely to say that that's part of their childhood. But that doesn't mean that it causes them to be gay. That's a different, you have to research that differently. Most people who have childhood sexual abuse as their history develop as heterosexual. To, so to say that that's the cause would be oversimplifying it as a pathway. I think it certainly complicates a person's sexuality. And if I'm providing counseling to someone or care for somebody, I would want to improve their relationship with their parent. I would want to help them resolve the negative consequences of childhood sexual abuse. But what I wouldn't promise them is that that would make them straight. It's just a good thing to provide for them. When I talk about other environmental influences, this comes from research on just really, it's interesting, on prevalence estimates that there are different prevalence estimates in rural, suburban, and urban settings. And you might just say, well, that's because of migration. People move to urban settings to be in those settings where there would be greater support for and permission or whatever to be in same-sex relationships. But those elevated rates are true even among adolescents. And adolescents are not migrating to urban settings. And so researchers have wondered if there's just something about certain settings that allow for a modeling and a anonymity and other things that influence the environment that make something more possible that wouldn't be possible in other settings. Again, does it, does it cause homosexuality? Well, no, it's probably not causing it, but you wouldn't want to um, underestimate the influence of the environment um, can shape decisions that we make as well. So the way that I would talk about this is more like if I want to get from the West Coast to the East Coast, um, it's a principle called equifinality, that there's multiple pathways. If I want to get from the West Coast to anywhere on the East Coast, I could be in, um, I could, there's multiple ways for me to get to the East Coast is what I'm saying. And that's the way I would think about it. These pathways are probably weighted differently for different people. So some people might have more of a push from biology. Others have more influence from childhood experiences or other environmental influences. And they're probably weighted differently for different people. And just like that, so multiple ways to get to the same endpoint, but then there's also multiple ways to arrive at the endpoint. Like you could be in New England, you could be with me in Virginia Beach, you could be down in Florida, which su suggests to you that there's multiple homosexualities. I think that's probably a good way to think about it. There's differences between male experiences and between female experiences, differences among males, differences among females. So I think what you would want to conclude is we don't really know the cause. There's probably multiple influencing causes that are weighted differently for different people, multiple pathways to get to the same endpoint and multiple endpoints that are all called homosexuality. And that's probably how nuanced that, that is, which is why there's a lot that we don't know. Okay. The other question that I get a lot is what about change? And I want to say a little bit more about this. Uh, the study that I was a part of was a seven-year longitudinal study. Now, if you're looking for some good beach reading for the summer or maybe a Christmas gift, uh, this, would be, this would be perfect. Um, 
So this is about a 400-page book on just research. Um, if you like reading tables or you like reading ANOVAs or chi-squares or whatever, this would be yours. Um, this, is, um, this is at time three. So we were tracking people for about three to four years, and we published it in book form. And we took a lot of criticism because it wasn't a journal article. So in 2007, we published it in a peer-reviewed journal article through time seven. And so, um, but we knew we couldn't tell the whole story of this study in a 18 to 20 page journal article, so we wrote a book about it, and then we published the later findings in a peer reviewed article. So that's the standard within my field is to do that. And I would tell you about this study, what would I tell you? Um, nobody liked this study. Uh, and if you go back to the cultural debates that polarize the nation, you have people on change who would say, um, there's just kind of two groups that are kind of at war. There's the, who I'd call the cynical pessimists, who would say, nobody has ever experienced change. And if they say they have, they're lying to you or telling you what you want to hear. Okay, so they would say orientation's an immutable characteristic like eye color. It's, it's unchanging, right? And then you would have the other group that would say, okay, so this group did not like our study because our study had data that, pushed back against that and said, there is evidence that people did experience meaningful shifts along a continuum. This group over here, I would call arrogant optimists. An arrogant optimist would say, anybody who tries hard enough or has enough faith can expect a 180 degree change from gay to straight. And this group didn't like our findings because we didn't show that either. We showed on average significant, statistically significant shifts along a continuum from same-sex attraction to opposite-sex attraction that was meaningful enough to bump up against this group but not strong enough to be a slam dunk for this group, right? So nobody liked the study in that sense. But in fact, it gave me a little bit of comfort, like maybe we have something right here. Because as a clinician, I was thinking, that probably about fits what I see when I talk to ministry people, when I interact with people, when people come to me. I work with a lot of people who've been in ministry who did not experience change. Like one man came to see me and he said he'd been in this change effort for over three years. He'd gone into a ministry, followed a curriculum. It was a 30-week curriculum that went through the year. And he got to the end of it and said, that was great. I got to be honest with you, I didn't change my attractions at all. What should I do? And the ministry leader said, go back through that curriculum. It's a good one. He said, okay, I'm going to go back in there. So he did that another, another year, 30-week. Comes back and he says, I learned so much about my life in Christ and I have grown significantly in Christ-likeness, but I have to tell you my attractions have not changed. What would you recommend I do at this point? And the ministry leader said, well, why don't you go back through that curriculum again? I mean, th this is, you know, this is what they had to offer, and he went through it thirty, no, another year. He got to the end of that, and he said, let me guess. No, he said, not, my attractions have not, have not changed, but I don't want to take away from this curriculum. It has been really helpful, and as a ministry, it's helped me to have a place to talk about this reality. I can't do that in my church. I'm so grateful for the reduced shame, the place to talk about this, but my attractions have not changed. And so they had recommended he go back through it again. So this is when he came to see me. All right. And so there's a little bit from a ministry standpoint where I would want to say, do we have more to offer people than just the expectation that they become straight? Because most people in our study did not experience heterosexuality. We had different clusters. We had people who experienced success so much so that we said that they... From their language, they changed to heterosexual as a small percentage of people, and they seemed to say that that was the case. But 
even in those cases, when you read their transcripts, they said they still experienced same-sex attraction from time to time. Now, our critics said, then they didn't change. Now, I'm just trying to share the data. So I, I get that. That is a concern for me. But when you treat people for depression, they can have successful outcomes and still feel blue from time to time. When you treat someone for a substance use disorder, they can have successful outcomes and still experience cravings from time to time. So I want to be consistent with the standards by which we report success. At the same time, I don't want to be naive. This is sexuality, and I get that. It's different. So I leave it to the reader to determine, what do you think about that? So that was, that, and that was the most successful success cases, right? The next group was the group that achieved chastity. And our critics said, that's not change. That's behavior. That's chastity. To which I said gently, yes, it is behavior change, but the way it's reported is that they re showed us a diminished strength in their same-sex attraction that made chastity possible when it wasn't possible previously. So yes, it's a change of behavior in light of a diminished same-sex attraction. So it's more than just behavior change, but there was not a corresponding increase in attraction of the opposite sex. So I'm not claiming it was heterosexuality. You see how complicated this guy? Nobody liked this study. Okay, so um, it sounds like you guys might not even like the study at this point. I don't know. So, um, so I'm, uh, you know, and then there were other groups that were continuing. There were groups that it didn't didn't work for them for a lot of reasons. So I just am really impressed, having gone through this, that I think it's easier to change behavior. I think it's easier to change identity and sort of how you organize your sense of self around your sexuality and things like that. What I think is not as clear what changes is the attractions and, and, uh, and things like that, although we showed evidence that there was some of that. But I don't want to overstate the case and fuel that emphasis on heterosexuality. I know plenty of people who by virtue of their heterosexuality are no more Christ-like. Um, that does not make you more Christ-like. I would encourage Christ-likeness across the board, and let's let the issue of their sexuality be in a sense. Like, I don't know what's going to happen there, but the thing that I can minister to is discipleship in Christ. So, the implications for ministry, in my view, and you know, we may not all be on the same exact place on this, is I would move away from orientation that sometimes measures a person's worth or value against their heterosexual potential. There's nothing quite like being hypervigilant about whether you're straight to make you, you know, just kind of focus on that. Uh, I think the idea, and then what happens, I think, for people is when they don't experience what they'd hoped for, they feel great distress about that, and they feel like they're to blame for that, or they blame God about that, and it creates a lot more spiritual crisis for them and emotional um, problems on the other side of that. So I move away from that. Emphasis on fostering their relationship with Christ and growing in spiritual maturity. Ultimately, I think it's that spiritual maturity that later informs decision-making. So I want to capitalize on the Christ-likeness. And then I don't minister out of rigid categories of gay and straight. I think those only contribute maybe to premature labeling. Like if I'm not gay, then I'm straight. If I'm not straight, then I'm gay. Ooh, let's back off a lot a little bit. Let's just talk about um, other ways to think about your identity and to describe your same-sex sexuality might be other approaches that are useful to you. So I use language like I'm helping someone navigate this terrain. I'm creating a place for them to explore meaning and purpose and anchor their identity ultimately in the relationships that they pursue with Christ. 
I offer them descriptive language if it's useful to them, but I also am respectful for language and categories that they find useful to themselves. So I'll talk about how I do that in a minute. Let me show you one study in case the offer of the book wasn't appealing enough. This is a study that we did for another book called Sexual Identity Synthesis, and we studied Christians. One group embraced a gay identity, integrated their attractions into a gay identity, and believed it to be morally permissible to be in same-sex relationships. So I call that the um, Christian Integrated Attractions into a Gay Identity column. The other group were Christians who did not identify with a gay identity, did not think it was okay to be in same-sex relationships. They, they distanced themselves from that identity and that community. And it was interesting. Both groups achieved congruence, but they used different strategies to get there. So the one group aligned their beliefs and values with their identity and behavior as a gay person. And they made this maneuver to reach congruence. They tended to attribute their attractions to who I am as a person. And they talked about worshiping God as a gay person, as an act of authenticity. This is how God made me. The other group that we were comparing them to were Christians who disidentified with a gay identity. And they achieved congruence by aligning their identity and their behavior with their beliefs and values as conservative Christians. So they made this maneuver. Also achieving congruence. Congruence is a psychological term for just um, when you live your life in a way that's consistent with your beliefs and values. And when you don't, you experience what we call cognitive dissonance. If you don't live your life according to your own values, you live kind of cognitive dissonance. So they're, they're achieving congruence. They attributed their attractions to, look, it's part of my experience, but it doesn't have to define my identity. It might be part of the fall. They, ex they explained it different ways. And they also talked about authenticity. That was what was fascinating. They said, God didn't intend for gay to be my identity out of which I would worship him. So I say no to that, and I worship God out of an identity in Christ. So, two very different groups, both achieving congruence, both making different maneuvers to sort of make their life work. Fascinating set of studies that were published uh, in a journal article and then in a, in a book form, if that interests you. So that, this kind of work brought me to a three-tier distinction that I use both in counseling and I use in, I would encourage, for pastoral care. And it's a distinction between attraction, orientation, and identity. And this comes from national studies where you ask people, do you experience same-sex attraction? And roughly 6 to 8% of adults, would, 18 to 55, would say, yes, I experienced same-sex, or I have experienced same-sex attraction at one point in my life. But if I asked them, do you have an orientation towards the same sex, that drop would drop to about 2 to 3% of the population of adults would say, I have enough attractions where I would say I'm oriented to the same sex. And you'll see there I used lowercase g to say that they would say today that they're gay. No, there's no 18 to 20-year-old college age student that I would run into who would say, I have a homosexual orientation. That language is not the common vernacular today. They would just say I'm gay. But then gay identity, um, as a capital G, if you were at chapel this morning, um, is presumably a smaller percentage of people because while most probably view being gay as perfectly fine, morally permissible, entering into relationships, not an issue, there's a group of people who would say, I can't do that. I have personal or religious beliefs that preclude me from doing that, so I don't do gay identity in that way. I don't celebrate it as an aspect of diversity, as an aspect of our culture. So 
sometimes when I meet with someone, I just make this three-tier distinction. And obviously what I'm doing is I'm deconstructing gay identity. And I'm just pulling it apart and saying, what are the parts that, that kind of go into that? And would more descriptive language be helpful to you? And I've had plenty of people say, thank you for that three-tier distinction, I'm gay. And we just kind of move on to a different discussion. But other people, one man is 26 or so, came to see me, I made this distinction. He said to me, you know, Mark, I wouldn't go down to the gay bar and explain that three-tier distinction to my friends because to them they would feel like I was splitting hairs. But for me, you've given me the intellectual space that I need to make decisions about how I describe myself, how I think about my identity, decisions about my behavior, and that's what's been helpful to me. So for him, I pulled it apart and he found it useful to describe what he feels, right? And for other people, that will not resonate. So as a resource, people may find that helpful. Now, I don't wield that as a weapon. I don't say to people, use descriptive language or put yourself at peril. I just offer it to people if it's helpful to them. And this is the quote that I read at chapel. I'm just going to read it for people who weren't there. But this was my friend who just made that distinction between different ways, even to use the word gay, right? So Karen says, in the world of hearing loss, you have those who are deaf and those who are deaf. And these two groups are well distinguished and identified. Anyone who uses capital D deaf knows she's referring to something more than small d deaf. People who are deaf with a capital D comprise a culture. They don't see themselves as having a disability. Instead, they see themselves as a people group with their own language and culture. On the other hand, those who are deaf with a lowercase do not see their hearing loss as an identity. Instead, they see it as a disability or a medical condition. This group is more likely to be oral. They often undergo intensive training to lip read. They use their voice to communicate instead of sign language. Some might also seek a cochlear implant. So when they say, I am deaf, they are not saying, I am deaf with a capital D. At times, there's contention between the two groups because of a conflict in how each group understands the experience of hearing loss. For example, those who are deaf with a capital D see cochlear implants as threatening and an extreme offense. They don't believe anything needs to be fixed. They celebrate their identity as deaf. So I do think this is one of the more intriguing pieces of ministry today than even 15 years ago, is that there's a younger generation of people using gay to, to just describe themselves, even if they think of themselves as having something more like a disability, um, and they're not celebrating their identity as gay, they might use the language because it's part of the common vernacular. And that could throw a minister off, thinking, why are you saying you're gay when gay means capital G in their mind, like promiscuity, relationships, moral, being morally permissible. You, you really don't know anything more about that person's view of morality by virtue of them telling you that they're gay today than you might have known that maybe a generation ago when gay was more synonymous with promiscuity. But today that would not be the case. I wouldn't assume anything um, from that language. All right, second reflection. Identify the lens through which people view the topic. So this came out in the book Understanding Gender Dysphoria that I'd written, uh, that came out this summer. I wrote about this in a Christianity Today article as well this July. But these are three lenses that I think people approach gender dysphoria and I think uh, also homosexuality as well. And I think it's useful in ministry to understand the lenses through which you see this issue and the lenses through which those you're ministering to see these issues. So uh, the three lenses are integrity, disability, and diversity. And the lens of integrity 
really is the lens that most evangelicals gravitate towards. This is the lens that says, as one theologian writes, there's an essential maleness or femaleness stamped on the body from creation. And it really is the theological reason why same-sex behavior is morally impermissible because it's, we are intended in our sexuality to bring the other into, into uh, connection, connectedness with one another. That the longing for completion in the other is to be the opposite sex, not the same sex. There's a complementarian, uh, uh, complementary understanding of our sexuality there that's in play that's meant to be instructive um, to us about a lot of different things. And I think ultimately that is the theological foundation rather than any specific verse in scripture that also talks about um, prohibitions here. So I think that resonates with a lot of evangelicals. Some are drawn to a disability lens, which would see this as more of a variation in nature. That would be the secular understanding. It's a variation in nature that doesn't demonstrate proper functioning. And it's not um, a moral category. It's a non-moral reality as a variation in nature. A Christian might look at that lens and say, as a result of the fall, some people's sexual attractions are not the way they were supposed to be, as Neil Plantinga Jr. would say. It's a result of the fall. Okay? Um, so the person doesn't choose their attractions. It's a non-moral reality in the sense that it was not volitional. It should draw more compassion from us. It's another way to think about this. The third lens is where the rest of our culture is. It's where my field is. Um, it's a diversity lens that says... Same-sex attractions signal an identity and a community that you really should celebrate as an expression of diversity today. So in a changing culture, which is what our focus is, that is where the changing culture has, has gone to. Now what I've recommended, and I'm not going to unpack tonight, is that actually we draw on the best of all three of these, that I think each one can be instructive to a minister today to help you minister more effectively. So I write more about that in that one book on gender dysphoria. But I would at least want you to recognize the lenses through which people you minister to are operating, right? Just to avoid speaking past one another. There's a great um, scene in uh, Barbara Walters' uh, special where she's interviewing a young transgender child. This child's named Jazz, has her own reality show, I Am Jazz, right now that you could actually see. Jazz is a biological male who's been raised as female, and Barbara Walters has been doing interviews with the family for many years. And a few years ago, she interviewed her, interviewed Jazz, and Jazz's older sister and two brothers, and said, how do you, to these siblings, how do you talk about Jazz to your friends? And the older sister pipes up and says, well, you might tell them it's a disorder and it's not something that she chose. Now, Barbara Walters has been doing this for a few years, and she knows what just happened. And so she says to Jazz, well, Jazz, what's it like for you to hear your sister talk about you that way? And Jazz says, well, I don't like that word, disorder. I prefer special or unique because that's how I think of myself. Okay, so right there, these kids love each other, this, these siblings. But the older sibling uses a d disability lens to explain Jazz to her peer group to pull compassion from them. Jazz says a disability lens is not going to help me and I would prefer a diversity lens. That's how I see myself. And they're in the same family. And you could imagine offering pastoral care to a family like that and maybe one or both parents operates out of an integrity lens. And they would all three love each other and all three be in the same family and easily speak past one another. Well, that happens in families. That happens in churches. 
That happens in colleges and seminaries. It happens in denominations. And of course, it happens in our broader cultural context. So, and again, at least to minister from the idea of what lens am I using, what lens am I drawn to, and I'm going to urge us to draw on the best of each of the three rather than land on one. I don't know that any one of these is going to be sufficient for pastoral care in the 21st century. Okay, reflection three. I would minister beneath the surface. Now, I hinted at this at the lunchtime, but I'm going to go over this with you because many of you weren't there for that. So think of this as an iceberg. Most people react in ministry settings to what's above the iceberg. So if we're talking about gay, lesbian, and bisexuality, it's identity labels. It's someone saying, I'm gay. We react to what's above the surface. Or if we're talking about gender dysphoria, it's gender atypicality. We're reacting to what's above the surface. But as anyone who is familiar with icebergs knows, there's a lot underneath the surface. That's the key to ministry. So at the top, you have things like gay, straight, bi, questioning, queer, side A, side B. If you're not familiar with that language, um, that comes from the Gay Christian Network. The Gay Christian Network is a, um, a newer ministry that is branding itself as a platform for all gay Christians to come together to be in dialogue with one another. And so they chose not to use language that would set up a, a sort of a pejorative of either one, so they used letters. So side A means... I believe it's morally permissible to be in a same-sex relationship. Side B says, I believe it's morally impermissible. All gay, all would say that they're Christian and they're in this dialogue. Now, to be, just to be completely forthcoming about this, it is run by side A gay Christians. The board, board is side A gay Christians. The, pre, the leader is side A. So if you go to the conference, it's mostly side A. So uh, many of the side B folks have left. Um, they work with a group called Spiritual Friendship. Um, of which I contribute some. So um, uh, I just want you to understand what that is. If you're ministering in the 21st century in the U.S., you should know what these different groups are. But anyway, you could react to the labels. Other labels that would maybe have been more popular a while back might have been, and some are popular today, would be an, a label like in Christ identity. Many people that we've surveyed at Christian colleges just call themselves heterosexual, even though that they have same-sex attractions, sometimes very significant. Some would say, I'm just same-sex attracted. Some would use, I'm ex-gay. I'm a struggler. I'm an overcomer. There are those who say, I was an ex-gay, and now I'm an ex-ex-gay. I think it stops there. I don't think that there's more exes to add to that. But, um, but I think where ministers can make a mistake is that they offer conditional ministry, by which I mean, I will minister to you if you begin with the language I'm comfortable with. And I don't think that's ministry. I think that's us wanting to be more comfortable with how they think about themselves and talk about themselves. What I would do is I would urge us to look at what's beneath the iceberg, look at or beneath the surface. There are needs for intimacy. There are needs for community. Can you minister to those? There are real, genuine spiritual questions. Does God really love me? that need to be answered. There are real hurts and disappointments, often at the hands of other Christians. Could you minister to those? There are questions that I mentioned this morning. Do you want me here in your youth group? Do you want me here in your parachurch ministry? Do you want me here in your church that should be answered? These are more fundamental ministry questions that I would put my emphasis on rather than whatever's at above the surface. Now, I'm not saying you would never come back to gender atypicality in the course of ministry, that you would never come back 
to questions of labeling in the course of ministry. But where I find ministers trip up is that they focus there on the front end of ministry and not at everything underneath the surface. Reflection four. It's related. It's minister to meaning and purpose. And this has to do with the major line of research that we do in our institute. We study, remember, sexual identity, which is the act of labeling yourself based on your sexual preferences. So gay, straight, bi, bi curious, questioning, queer. There are dozens of sexual identity labels. A generation ago, this wasn't even a conversation people were having. Identity labels. Today, you could swing a cat and hit an identity label. And as a dog lover, let me just encourage you right now, that's exactly what you ought to be doing. Um, actually, I have a cat. I would swing that cat. So um, I know of what I speak here. So, I, I, um, so younger people today are navigating those questions in a way that their parents' generation just did not. They just weren't on the table. But young people today have a host of identity labels and considerations. So in the mainstream, this is what what typically is done, is that you interview or survey people who are gay or lesbian about the milestone events that shaped the development of their identity. What were the, 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 the significant events in your life that brought you to the place where you said of yourself, I am gay, where you made a self-defining attribution, I am gay. And so it's things like initial awareness of attraction, same-sex behavior to orgasm, first questioning of my identity, first time I defined myself and said, I am gay. And I give you the averages just from the mainstream secular research, average of three to four year process for females, five to six years for males. But that could just be a couple of months. That could be 15 or more years. Um, So that's what we study. So when I look at this visually, there can be for Christians a conflict between their religious identity as a Christian and their same sex sexuality. I illustrate that here as a storm cloud. The young person is asking a question. Let's say they're a teenager. 14 or 15 or 16, they're asking, who am I in light of my same-sex sexuality? Now, that's actually a more fundamental question in adolescence up to emerging adulthood anyway. Think here, Eric Erickson, developmental psychology. Like, That's a normal question every teenager through emerging adulthood asks. Who am I? And what you hope for is that an adolescent will, they, they try on different identity roles in different settings. They're one way at home, they're another way at youth group, they're one way at church, they're this way at school, and you're looking for a sort of a consistent identity across those things, and they achieve an identity uh, synthesis at the end, and they kind of resolve for sort of a consistent way of presenting themselves. All right, now layer into that same-sex sexuality. Well, it just got more complicated. Layer into that Christian faith in light of the same-sex, more complicated, right? So they're navigating normal developmental questions and additional developmental questions around sexual identity. So the way that you study this is um, identity development can be broken down into there's this dilemma of feeling different from your peers at a young age because of your same-sex attraction. And then you see milestone events, which are sexual identity development. I broke that out into those milestone events. I gave you slightly different ones in your handout. I was working on this this afternoon, and I've updated a little bit, because what I, what I gave you was a 2009 study, and what I give you here, visually, is two studies that I combined. One was the 2009 that you have, and one was a 2013 study with over twice as many people. So the one study was like 104 people. The second study was 256. I've combined them, so you have this chart. Think of it as I'm always working for you. Right? I was working on that this afternoon. Um, and so here, here you have that. Now, 
what I have at the bottom here is that most of these people didn't do things that are volitional. It says something like, um, in the most recent study, only 26% of Christians engaged in same-sex behavior. 11% adopted a gay identity. 18% reported an ongoing same-sex relationship. In other words, when it came to the things that were volitional, the things that you had say over, many of the Christian students that we sampled at Christian colleges didn't do those things. The things that they didn't have say over, like finding yourself with attractions, of course they did, but the things that you could have say over, should I engage in behavior or not, most of our sample didn't do that. Should I label myself this way or not? Should I enter into an ongoing relationship or not? They didn't do those things. And I just give you those parentheses are the average age range where that occurred. Okay? These are all SSA people? Everybody... No, everybody who experiences same-sex attraction. Yeah. So if you take the attraction to the top, everybody experiences same-sex attraction. Average age would be 12 to 14. That's a little bit older. In mainstream, you'd see about 12 or 11 to 13, somewhere in there. But about right. Same-sex behavior to orgasm. When would you label yourself as gay? When would you share that with other people? And when would you enter into an ongoing relationship? We had quite a span for relationship from the two studies, so that's why that span is a bit longer. Now, if I'm in ministry, I'm going to ask about and explore meaning at those different milestone events. So, so look, at, look at how I would do this here. So on the right, how do I make sense of what I feel? When I experience attractions and those around me do not experience the same attractions to the same sex, how do I make sense of that is a ministry question. Should I refrain from sexual behavior? Now, my counsel is yes. I think the longer you refrain, the better your decision-making down the road. So yes, whether you're gay or straight, that's what I would recommend. How do I name my reality, which has to do with labeling? Today, do I think of myself as gay, bi, questioning, curious? Like that's a question they're asking. So rather than react to the label, think of the iceberg and sit with them as they wonder, how do I name my reality? Who can I trust with what I'm going through? In the mainstream, we call that coming out. But I really like the language of, this is a young person trying to find people with whom they can be more forthcoming, more transparent about what's really going on in their life. I think a lot of young people make a declarative statement, I am gay, and they plant an identity label flag right in the middle of the turkey at Thanksgiving, almost as an act of resilience to say, this is who I am. And I, you know, because they've been navigating this terrain since as young as 12. Then they go off to college. They don't even disclose till they're 17 or 18. And they say, this is who I am at Thanksgiving. It's almost an act of resilience to sort of make all this work. And then parents react to the label flag that's in the middle of their turkey rather than what's going on underneath the surface for their loved one. What's going on? How do I minister to this? And unfortunately, then we get back to, well, just don't call yourself this or just don't talk about it this way. Don't my thing. That's not adequate for ministry. I get the concern about that, but there's so much more going on for a teenager or an emerging adult than a question of label. All these other questions. When parents say, I don't even know my daughter anymore, I gently say, well, let's take a sheet of paper. <laughs> let's put a line right down the middle and let's put your daughter's same-sex sexuality that she just told you about Let's put that on the left-hand side. On the right-hand side, why don't you write down everything else that you know about your daughter? Okay. She's funny. She's really bright. She's athletic. She loves God. Okay. She's compassionate. She's humble. All these different things. Okay. Those things did not 
cease to be who she is because now you've learned this about your daughter. In fact, if anything, you know more about your daughter today than you did 72 hours ago. These things are still true, and now you have more information. That's a pretty helpful step you can take with someone. How can my needs for intimacy be met? Which is a question of relationship. So even if the person decides I'm not going to be in a same-sex relationship because I don't think it's morally permissible, right? Side B, whatever you want to call it. They still have needs for intimacy. And if those needs are not met within the body of Christ, in real sustained relationships, those needs will still be there and they will come out sideways down the road. And what sometimes happens is the rest of us can look at them and say, when it comes out sideways, in unhealthy ways, can sort of say, well, you are who we knew you were. And we don't recognize how we can be complicit in creating the very atmosphere that makes it hard for them to share with us what's really going on in their lives. That's a ministry challenge in the 21st century. So let me fill out the rest of this image. On the one hand, you have the gay community, and I want to help you understand that they are ready to answer questions about identity and community. If they see a 14-year-old navigating this terrain, they would say to that person, we know exactly who you are. You're one of us. We can answer your question about identity. We can answer your question about community. And they look to the church, and they say, well, what is my church that I was raised in? What do they have to say to me about identity and community? And most churches don't talk about sexuality at all, let alone homosexuality. Or when we talk about these topics, we can talk about it in a way that limits it to cultural debates and public policy that make it very difficult for a 14-year-old to know how to make sense of this stuff. So if they hear from church leadership, homosexuals are ruining this culture, or homosexuals are ruining marriage, it's very difficult at age 14 to tease out what exactly you're saying politically and what you're saying about them in light of their same-sex sexuality. They just don't have the cognitive complexity to figure all that out. But what they're telling us, they don't even hear anything at, at, at their churches typically. Now, a few years ago, I introduced a concept I want to share with you. I called it, uh, it's a script. Now, a script is not, that's not, I did not introduce that. That's very well known in my field. So a script is a cultural expectation for how we behave and relate to one another. So, for example, have you ever gotten in an elevator and you walk in the elevator and you turn around and you hit the button for your floor and everybody stares blankly at the door as it shuts? and you don't talk to anybody. Okay? That's a cultural expectation for riding elevators. right? If you were to turn around and say, let's take a selfie, let's do this, let's do that, you would sort of be going against the cultural expectation. People would notice. right? <laughs> I gave this talk one time, and I gave that illustration. I swear to you, that night, I go to my hotel. I'm going into the elevator with a group of people, and two teenage girls, like 50 or something, say, let's do a selfie to like, the rest of us in the elevator. We're like, okay, that just got really weird. Um, <laughs> And we did. We did a selfie. But they illustrated my point. That got really weird. Okay, so... Um, um, and there's cultural expectations for so many experiences, right? Handshakes, greetings, um, bigger things. Like, when should a single person get married? There's a cultural expectation for that. When, if you're married, when should a married couple have children? Right? It's just a script. It's an expectation. Well, a few years ago, I suggested that there's something like a gay script, meaning a cultural set of expectations for making meaning and sense of your same-sex sexuality. So this you have in your handout. What I said was, um, same-sex attractions signal 
a naturally occurring distinction between types of people, that there are gay, straight, and bisexual types of people. Religious people would say an intended by God distinction. Now, this is not my argument. This is the gay script here, right? Same-sex attractions signal who you really are as a person. They're at the core of who you are as a person. So same-sex behavior is an extension of that core. It's not something that you would evaluate as right or wrong. It comes from the person, from the organism. So it's a desire that anybody would have for sexual behavior. It's an extension of that central sense of identity. So in that sense, it's morally neutral and would need to be evaluated on other terms. And now you can talk about the self-actualization of your sexual identity. Now, my main point in saying that is that that's a very emotionally compelling script. If you go back to this illustration, and that's the resource to answer fundamental questions about identity and community. It's as though the broader LGBT community is saying, we can answer questions that you have about identity and community Look at the script. Like that, you're not going to Google that and find that anywhere. That's just, kind of, that's just the way that our culture thinks about this. Now, you might say, are there other scripts? Yeah, I mean, sure, there are other scripts. I was once giving a talk, and I didn't know of other scripts at the time, but someone asked me that question. I said, well, I think there are other scripts, but it, would, it really should come from that community, not from a guy you know, thinking about it. So... I did a line of research asking about other scripts uh, like this, and I'm going to share one of them with you, but there are potentially dozens. So here's one other one. And this one was from people who did not identify as gay. That's that group that I was showing earlier who chose not to identify as gay. They said um, same-sex attraction signals not a categorical distinction among types of persons, but one of many human experiences that are, quote-unquote, not the way it's supposed to be. Back to Neil Planninga Jr.'s line. Same-sex attraction is part of your experience, but not the defining element of your identity. You could integrate your experience of attraction into a gay identity, or you could choose to center your identity around other aspects of personhood. And one of the most salient aspects of personhood for the Christian is an identity in Christ. So for this group of people, this line of research I called it an in Christ script. Now remember, I'm not setting this up as you've got to make people choose. In Christ or gay. I'm not doing that. There are potentially dozens, right? We're already seeing, I, there is, there was, uh, is an ex-gay script, right? It's a diminished storyline today in our culture, I would say. But it exists. There's also um, uh, an emerging celibate gay Christian storyline. That's another script that's emerged, that's been a, kind of popular lately. There's all kinds of potential scripts. I've mentioned side A gay Christian, like the idea that you think it's morally permissible to be in a same-sex relationship and you call yourself a gay script Christian has become a script for some people, right? Now, I disagree with that, but I'm, I'm just illustrating that there are multiple scripts. Okay? So to minister effectively in the 21st century is to see the landscape, to see the different scripts that are there, to see which ones are the most emotionally compelling and why, and minister to that need with a competing alternative script. That's a challenge for the church today. One of the greatest challenges is the issue of shame. Shame has become a primary script in many conservative churches. One person we interviewed said, I'd say it was really hard for me to tell other people with same sex, or I'm sorry, with the same religious spiritual beliefs about my experiences with same sex attraction because I already knew what they believed, that it's immoral and I thought they'd think I'd chosen to be attracted to the same sex. 
Now, what thickens the plot even more is now you have younger voices saying, you don't have to choose between the gay community and the local faith community. You have, as I mentioned, the Gay Christian Network. You have someone like Justin Lee, his book Torn. You have Matthew Vines, whose video went viral, and then he wrote the book God and the Gay Christian. You have more scholars like James Bronson writing about, you know, we've, we've misunderstood Paul on this. And so there are increasing numbers of voices saying it's, it's not one or the other, there's other ways. And so that's a part of the discussion. It's, it's been there, it's, that's not new to this era. These are just newer resources I'd want you to, to know about because people you minister to will know about them. Um, but that's entered into the mix in a different, maybe fresh way, even though it had been argued for before by William Countryman and Victor Paul Furnish and so on. And I think people are still looking at the church with a big question mark, what do you have to offer? All right, reflection five. Be relationally present to those who are unchurched. Be relationally present to those. Um, This has to do with thinking more missionally. And this will resonate with some, it won't resonate with others. But I work with a lot of churches around the country, um, and I would say the ones that want to be more missional tend to gravitate towards this. All right, so let me walk through this. People have to fall in love with Jesus for their behavior to align with a traditional Christian sexual ethic. In other words, I don't expect people to follow a traditional sexual ethic if they don't have a relationship with Christ and don't love Christ in that way. Behavior aligns, however imperfectly, when people trust God as a good father who knows best how they can thrive. People don't trust God like that until they experience God relationally. And people don't experience God relationally until they're loved and connected to his people. So if I'm in ministry, I'm not pushing sexual ethics on a person who has not known God to be a good and loving and trustworthy and spiritually present through his people. And many gay people would say, I have not known God that way. Christians have been pretty unkind to me. Right? I assume that in most relationships I have with gay people, that they have not had a great track record with Christians. So I work more on the relational part And ultimately, what the hope is, is that they would begin to trust that there might be a father in heaven whose plan for their sexuality is better than their own plan. The only way they reach that conclusion is that they have a relationship with Christ. And the only way that's possible is they have their relationship with people who bear Christ's name. And that's my point of focus in ministry. So some churches are exploring this. Instead of a typical evangelical church that says, behave a certain way and we would love to have you come Sunday. And then that's where you'll learn who Christ is and you'll believe in Christ. This is not original to me, so I'm just sharing this model. And then you would belong. You'd be one of us. And we're surprised that people don't sign up for that. Like that People are not drawn to that. They're saying, I got other options. I don't need this in my life. Okay. So another approach might be this. We want you to be here. That's why I asked that question in chapel today. Do you want gay and lesbian people in your ministry, in your church, in your youth group? I would say yes. It's here. We want you here. Now, it's in that context that we'll introduce Christ and there's an opportunity to believe in Christ, have that relationship with Christ. And now, it's not behavior. It's not behavioral compliance. It's become. We will become Christ-like together. That is sanctification. right? So this model, though, is messy. This model is going to be challenging. I don't know that I have great answers for all the complex questions that come up around it, but it is our culture has changed so dramatically, so rapidly, 
that I think churches are exploring these other models as possibly viable. Okay, my last reflection, and then I'll land the plane, is to take an our people approach to those within the body of Christ navigating these issues. Now, what do I mean by our people? This comes from my first year as a new assistant professor, had no idea what I was doing, and I was at the American Psychological Association, and I was listening to two gay psychologists talk about gay Christians who were leaving the gay community to go to Christian ministries. And the one gay psychologist said to the audience, we're failing our people, by which he meant we're failing to meet the needs that gay people have for religion and spirituality. And they leave our community to go to these Christian ministries that are hurting them. Now, first of all, I'm thinking, that's an interesting research question. Like, are those ministries hurting people? And then I would spend 10 years doing that. Okay, but anyway, be careful what sessions you sit in on. Uh, But then the other thing that struck me is I'd never heard somebody use language like that. We're failing our people. And that he would think he had more in common with a gay person who said they were a Christian by virtue of being gay than I would have with that person by virtue of being a Christian. And then it dawned on me that I had never heard a pastor from the pulpit say anything similar, by which the pastor would say, we're failing our people. And the pastor would mean, we're failing to meet the needs for identity and community. And young people are leaving the body of Christ to go find that in the gay community. And I have to tell you, friends, that completely spun me around and oriented me towards a path of research and ministry and service for the next 17 years. In closing, a couple of resources that I mentioned that I work with a group called Spiritual Friendship. They're, I'm just, they're mostly Christians who are either in mixed orientation marriages where one is gay and one is straight or they're celibate. I'm a token heterosexual person. They let blog with them. Um, but, I, but this is a group. Christopher Yuan is not part of that group. He has a great book called Out of a Far Country, terrific man of God, who still experiences same-sex attraction, but has a wonderful testimony of God's redeeming work in his life. Wesley Hill, who would say he is celibate um, and is a uh, uh, Christian and is a professor of theology, um, is a Wheaton grad, he writes about his same-sex sexuality, in Washington Waiting. Eve Tushnet's Catholic, and she talks about issues of vocation in a very compelling way. Um, Wesley Hill, again, wrote another book called Spiritual Friendship, where he tries to address the question of how will you meet needs for intimacy if what's off the table is genital sexual activity. And he says, it's off the table for me. I'm celibate. But, but then you can't all go home and say, good luck with your celibacy. What's it going to mean to address needs for intimacy with people? Okay. And then, um, for what it's worth, these are some resources that I have as well on uh, sexual identity and gender identity. So, anyway, I'll close there. Thank you. All right. That was uh, wonderful. And we have, uh, Jennifer has a, uh, a microphone, so as you have a question... Please state your name and then address your question. So who would have a question first? Uh, Dr. Hammett. Yeah, I'm John Hammett. I teach theology here. And I was going to ask you, in terms of ministering to those with gender dysphoria, uh, you mentioned those three different lenses. In terms of, of percentages or, or proponents, what lens do they choose to, to think of their gender dysphoria with? 
integrity, diversity, disability. Right, is one of those more popular than others with uh, those with gender dysphoria? Yeah, that's a really interesting. So there's no research on that whatsoever, to, to be completely honest. So I'm just going to go with my experience with people. Now, I work with mostly Christians who experience gender dysphoria, um, meaning most of the people with gender dysphoria I meet are Christians. And so I would say they mostly see it as disability um, and some as diversity, but mostly disability. It's something that they, they have not chosen. They see it as not the way it's supposed to be, that things are out of alignment. One person said to me, it's like puzzle pieces that don't fit. And you, you ever try to force a puzzle piece when it doesn't fit? That's what my dysphoria feels like. And sometimes it is absolutely acute and, and so painful. And other times it's more manageable. But that, that lack of fit, so that's kind of that disability. Like it's supposed to fit if all things were the way they were meant to be, but it doesn't. Um, but there are some that I've met who would see it more like a, a, a thing to be celebrated, but that's a pretty small percentage. Um, and I think the, and there's a connection here between the disability and integrity. It's because, in large part, of the integrity framework that many people feel like it's a disability. Like it's, it's, it's often in reference to what's normative, like what ought to be. So there's actually a connection between those two that I don't want to um, skirt past either. So thank you. Very good question. Next question. I have a question. Oh, go ahead, John, and then I'll, I'll follow up with my question. Uh, hold on there. Say your name and, and speak to the mic. It's being recorded. My name is John May. I have a question. I've been a pastor for a number of years, and one of the things that I've dealt with is homosexuals saying that if I'm a Christian and I'm going to be celibate, that I'm, they're concerned or upset that they're never going to be able to have physical intimacy with anyone. And I find the same or argument uh, and concerns coming from people who are heterosexual but single and for some reason it looks from their perspective in their mind that they're never going to marry again or never be able to be married and if they are a following Christian values then they're also never going to be able to have intimacy mm-hmm. uh, and they're concerned about that and then there's a big guilt issue of violating Christian standards and not being true uh, to their relationship with Christ. Do you see a correlation between the heterosexual single who's wrestling with celibacy and the homosexual who's wrestling with celibacy? Let me add just a little tweak to that question Mm -hmm. in that I've heard many would say, well, at least the heterosexual who is being celibate has a hope that in the near future, that one day they'll be married, whereas the, the, the gay celibate recognizes that this is a lifelong condition. And there, so there, there's a difference there in terms of, of, of optimism for the future, if you would. Have you heard that? And, yeah. and, and, and how would you, is that? Is yeah, that, can I add something to what you yeah. said? Because this is something that's developing. One of the th- issues earlier in my ministry, because I've been a pastor for about 20 years, was for heterosexuals, we had an increasing exposure to accepted um, sex outside of marriage in the media and advertising and sitcoms on television. And now over the past several years, we're having the same thing with the homosexual community. Mm-hmm. So there was, there's, for the heterosexual for a long time, there was increased temptation from the culture around them. Right. But now with the homosexual, what I was hearing is the same thing. We're seeing the 
increased temptation because it's normalized as a standard in the media for both groups. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you've captured the landscape really well. That's, that's the ministry landscape we're in today. Um, I think... Uh, I actually like situating them as more similar than different, meaning I would want my church ministry to address single sexuality and minister to single people where a gay or homosexual person would have more in common in that sense because they will also have needs for intimacy and you will have far more single heterosexuals than you ever will have single gay people in your church just by virtue of those prevalence estimates I shared. So that's really critical. And I mentioned in chapel today that most of the ministries, if you ask single people today, their experience in the local church is that most ministries are utterly dissatisfying because they're designed to get them married. And they don't value them and help them flourish as a single person. So that's the overhaul I would work on. If I wanted to hit the most people, get the most bang for my buck, is that area. Now, are there differences? Yes, if you were to interview gay people, they would say to you, there are differences because that person often holds out that hope that someday they will get married. Now, I don't think that really captures most evangelicals' approach to marriage. Like, I could always just get married if it just becomes <laughs> unbearable. I don't think most evangelicals really think about marriage quite that way. But uh, I do think gay people see it differently in that way and um, also see it differently in that they can date they can do things to meet needs for connection and romance and things like that that seem like that, that, that faucet's turned off for them. They can't really explore those pieces. And so that, is, that would feel different, right? If this person, maybe they're not going to marry, but they can date. And you say, well, that's just dating. But that's a lot more if you can't do any of that or if you don't feel like that's morally permissible. It's going to take you down a path that you don't want to go down. So I think it is different in those ways. And I, I think I would want to be sensitive in ministry that they're not the same. But I would probably put my energy towards a ministry overhaul of single ministry and single sexuality. So Next question. Brandon here. Brandon? Hi, I'm Brandon. Uh, so I have a question. So dealing with as you're working through understanding how to minister to people who have same-sex attraction, the big question I want to know is the initial reaction you have to them. So you're in a small group talking to a combo with guys, and somebody just someone you barely know comes out and says, "Well, I have same-sex attraction, struggled my whole life." How do you have the initial reaction that doesn't completely isolate that person? Instead of the whole "Oh," <laughs> not going there, but having an initial reaction that says, "We're willing to talk to you and interact with you on this topic. We're willing to accept you." Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I just look him straight in the eye and I say, thank you, thank you for sharing that with me. You know, thanks for trusting me with that. Thanks for, for sharing that. Um, I imagine there's a whole lot more that you could say, and I would, I'd love to, to, to know more. You know, like I, I don't try to, do, I try not to do anything that would suggest that I'm uncomfortable with this. Now that's, I mean, I've done this for quite a while, so that's probably true for me. That might not be true for everybody, but I mean, you know, the. Think about that person. They have so much more in common with you than they do different than you. And I think sometimes we react to some fear that they'll be attracted to us or that it's going to get awkward or something like that. Look, gay people are not attracted to every person of the same sex, just like heterosexual people are not attracted to every one of the opposite sex. They're telling you something about themselves. They're being transparent. They're being vulnerable. That's actually the way we have designed ministry. Like that's They're actually doing what you suggested we do 
and they bought into that vision and they did it. So the last thing you want to do is say, didn't mean that. Didn't, wasn't intending you to take me up on that. You say, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've had friends where I've, this is probably not a great image to, to, to share here, but I've done friends that I've pushed all my, you know, chips in across the table and said, look, I'm all in with you. Um, I, I, I love you and I care about you. There's nothing you could say or do that would, that would sever that tie. And these are friends, these are, you know, lifelong friends. So that's, uh, that's more the posture I take with, with people. Next question, question in the back, Ashley. Hi. Um, I have two questions. One, I've always wondered if this was true. It sounded really good and true to me once, and I wondered, oh, that'd be great if this was true. Um, our pastor once said, everyone is born a sexual deviant. So there's no such thing as a person born when it comes to the fall um, whose sexual desires is going to lead them in a really righteous path. All of us are probably sexually deviant to some level. Um, would you say that's true? <laughs> are we all perverts? <laughs> well, let me let me gently offer why I, I probably wouldn't use that language to be honest with you okay. because sexual deviant was a phrase that had been applied to homosexuals historically and it has not been applied historically to heterosexuals so there's a the, the truth in that statement is we are all affected by the fall all of our sexuality is affected by the fall but where I wouldn't use language that has a direct negative connotation to one group of people that has never historically been applied to the other group of people, and then say that, that we're all the same in that way. Like, I think that would be, yeah, unhelpful. She had a second follow-up. Yeah, second question um, has to do with gender dysphoria. Sure. Um, you, your research starts at 12 years old. I'm wondering, um, this is just personal. I have a uh -huh. sister whose daughter, since she was three, since she was two, been saying she, she's supposed to be a boy. Right. Only wanted boy things, you know, and she hasn't hit puberty yet. I'm wondering, do you see... Um, well, I guess what is your experience with young with young children and do you if I'm babysitting her and she says something like that do I walk her through something or do I let it be you know I don't know with ages yeah great question okay so these are the all the data I showed here was on homosexuality or gay and lesbian issues so gender dysphoria is a whole different topic and it um the usual onset for gender dysphoria is between ages two and four. So gender identity is usually established between ages two and four. That's when someone first kind of recognizes themselves as a boy or a girl, right? And so for most cases, now gender dysphoria is very, very rare. When it does occur, it usually occurs in what we call early onset, which would be at that age range. It can occur, we call late onset, which would be any, really any other time in a person's life, but that's not, that's even less typical. So ages two to four, early onset, and just for what it's worth, in most cases, this resolves on its own before that child reaches late adolescence or adulthood. In about 75% of those cases, it resolves on its own. So for, I don't know if this will, I don't know if it is, it is this, you know, it, it, we're just kind of going on the initial, um, you know, report. Now, if I'm babysitting a child like that, I really don't, I don't, I don't really do anything particular around their gender identity. 
Um, I would probably talk with the parents about what their wishes would be. I'd be respectful of those wishes. Um, I, I could imagine a conflict if I felt like the parents wanted to reinforce one set of behaviors and habits and expressions and I felt convicted that that was not a good idea. Um, I would probably, you know, talk with them about that and withdraw from that role rather than undermine their parenting or thing. Not that you were suggesting that, but um, I, I think I would, you know, let them know about that conflict if it felt that way to me. But I think it's really good with a child that age to, to, to love them and to, uh, to offer unconditional love to a child. We don't really have protocols and research that suggest that if you intervene a certain way, that that'll, that'll help that re resolution in the way that you may wish. Um, so in other words, if you have a 75% likelihood that it'll resolve on its own, we don't have interventions that up that beyond 75. So there's a sense in which you kind of naturally see what happens, and then you face, the family faces some very challenging questions if it doesn't resolve. So. Next question. Here. Jennifer up here. Say your name and ask your question. Hi, my name is Gene Burris. Um, some have suggested that there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between lust, as it uh, is depicted in scripture, epithemia, and the modern psychological construct of same-sex attraction. Um, also, just another thing I'll throw in here, uh, Stanley Grins makes the differentiation that there's a difference between sexual desire and a desire for sex. So uh, as you're counseling, as you're conceiving, uh, conceiving these things, uh, what, if any, difference would you, would you make between those two? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would dis make a distinction, at least as a psychologist, I would make a distinction between same-sex attraction and lust. I would see those as two different things. Um, and I think, it, I think ultimately, I draw a little bit on just the analogy as a heterosexual between being attracted to someone and lusting after someone, I think, are two different things. To recognize someone as attractive to me versus lusting after someone would be two different things. And I also think that I, I go back a little bit to you know Jesus being fully God and fully man is that I think he was a sexual being. And being fully man, he had sexual, he was a sexual being, a gendered being. He had, you know, if you think of sexuality in part as a longing for completion in the other, he had those desires too. But ultimately, those longings are for God in eternity. Now, he is God, but I also think he was a sexual being. So that has a lot of implications um, that I think have to be in play for him to be fully human and fully divine. Um, so I'm comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable, though, I would not say he lusted after someone, because I think then you're crossing into what is volitional and what would be sin. And so being fully divine and without sin, I don't think he lusted after people. Um, I do like Grenz's distinction there. I think you know the desire for sex, if you want to put that in the category of lust, some line there that gets drawn would be one thing, and sexual desire in and of itself would be part and parcel to being human. And I don't think that in and of itself is sin. So. Very good. Next question. I see right up here. Jennifer, one row over in front there in front of Jean. Say your name and your question. Hi, I'm Virginia Scott. I'm a counseling student here in the PhD uh, program. Uh, I actually have recommendation questions. Um, okay. 
if so, you were, what would you recommend for someone who wants to work in the single ministry for any sort of books or research that are excellent that dealing with sex and single ministry? Yeah, there is. Um, okay, I'm not remember the title of it, but Doug Rosenau, I think, and Michael Todd Wilson, I think, wrote a book on singleness that I think was good. Um, I think another good book. Um, there is a book on revisiting what celibacy is that was written by two people, neither of whom is gay. It's just about being single. And uh, I think it's called Singled Out, maybe. Um, it's kind of a catchy title, but I'm not 100% sure. But if you could always email me and I can throw on my bookshelf, I just have to, I, I'm trying to mentally pull them off my shelf right now. And my second part to that is, in your own writing, do you have something which you engage, something that's published with, your topic about scripts and cultural expectations. Do you have something published in regards to that? Well, I introduced the two scripts in Homosexuality and the Christian. And then um, I think, though I wrote a white paper that I think is on the Gospel Coalition's website. It's the Christ on Campus Initiative. So it's, it's layered. It's hard to find, actually. <laughs> but it's in a layer of their website. Uh, it's also on our website, actually. I think I got it permission to import it there. So... Um, but I think that white paper um, also introduces it. But either one would be an option.